result of an acoustic neuroma tumor and the surgery that followed to remove that tumor. I have been completely deaf on my left side since I was 25 years old. This left here is purely cosmetic. It's absolutely useless. But as a result of my hearing loss, I am continually aware of a couple of things that, well, many two-eared hearing people often take for granted. The first is I'm incapable of hearing anything in stereo. Doesn't matter how good the equipment is or how advanced the technology. Without two ears, you are incapable of hearing stereo. The second is being able to determine where sound comes from, where it originates. So if you call out to me, and, or if we're in a classroom setting and you shout out an answer, I go into panic mode, scanning the crowd, looking for a face with moving lips so I can determine who it is that's speaking. If you're to call from me across the street, I have to do a complete 360 turnabout in order to determine where the sound is coming from. We hear a, a new or a strange rattle in our old BMW. Well, I just tell Cynthia to turn up the radio. <laughs> Hearing in stereo or being able to locate the origin of sound is something that, well, you two-eared hearing people, you just take for granted. You don't even think about it. It's as you know, natural as taking your next breath. You never know the difference. And so it's easy for to take it for granted. But beloved, I don't think hearing in stereo and being able to detect the origin of sound are the only things that we take for granted. Apostle John, in the text that we want to consider this morning, provides a report of Jesus' arrest. In John chapter 18, we find the details, different and yet complementary to those found in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The details here found in John chapter 18 will serve to increase our appreciation of Jesus' determination to fulfill or to finish all that the Father had given him to do. God's will, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is good, acceptable, and perfect. And I would add, sometimes difficult, very difficult. But Jesus was determined determined to complete all that the Father had given him to do. And we became the beneficiaries of his determination. This text will help us to appreciate Jesus' willingness to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He did it for your sake and for mine. And so if you're able, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 18, and stand for the reading from God's Word, 
John chapter 18, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through to the end of verse 14. So beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine to the Kidron, where there was a garden, which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, again he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the words which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we hold in our hands the best seller of all time. And in this country, we enjoy such freedom to read it, hear it, study it, memorize it, and ignore it or despise it as an ancient, irrelevant book of tales. But this morning, we come believing that it is much more than just a book. It's the very words of our Creator God the one and only true God who has chosen to reveal his person, plans, purposes, and perspectives in a written word. May the same spirit that inspired men to write this word now illumine our minds so that we're able to understand what you have communicated to us. And then may that same spirit Convict us of sin, 
and conform us to the image of Jesus so that we are increasingly able to live lives that glorify you. Use this episode of Jesus' arrest. To that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, was arrested. Did you notice that little phrase tucked away in the middle of these verses? You may want to take your pen or highlighter and underline it. Look at the beginning of verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, that is a defining phrase of this entire episode. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him. We need to keep that in the forefront of our minds as we study the details of Jesus' arrest. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, did nothing to avoid his arrest. Look again at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words. Jesus has been the primary spokesperson for the last five chapters of John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. The upper room discourse begins in John chapter 13 and carries on all the way through to the end of John chapter 16. And as we come to John chapter 17, Jesus is still speaking as he prays. He prays first for himself, then for his disciples, and finally for all those who will believe in him as a result of these disciples' message or testimony. Chapter 18 in the NIV limits what Jesus had spoken to his prayer. It reads, when he had finished praying. But the New Living Translation is also much more inclusive. After saying these things. But regardless, following his prayer, notice we're reading in verse 1, when Jesus went forth with his disciples over the ravine of Kidron. That's just beyond the eastern wall of the city of Jerusalem. They crossed the Kidron Valley, went up the Mount of Olives, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. What's happening here? I'll tell you what's not happening. Jesus did not run. He entered the garden. There are a couple of observations I'd like us to make in this part of the story. It reads, where there was a garden. 
Perhaps the Apostle John was intentional by not calling it the Garden of Eden or Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe he wanted another garden to come to his readers' minds. Certainly came to my mind. The original garden. The garden where God had placed the first Adam. Adam and Eve. A garden in which the Lord God would walk with them in the cool of the day. That is, until they disobeyed him. Willfully, deliberately, consciously. At that point, the original garden became the birthplace of humanity's sin. And so from that moment forward, all humanity would be born with a sin nature. And from that point forward, left to ourselves, it is in our very nature to stand in opposition to all that God stands for. And so, Adam and Eve's sin, committed in the original garden, made this trip, Jesus' trip, to the Garden of Gethsemane an absolute necessity. It's also interesting to observe that what John did not include in this account. Do you notice the gap between verse 1 and 2? What's missing? All three synoptics include it. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. Mark chapter 14, verse 32 to 34. Luke chapter 22, verses 40 to 46. All three synoptic accounts include Jesus' agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane while his disciples slept. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Clearly, this specific detail did not serve John's purposes for writing this account of the life and ministry of Jesus. You'll remember what that is in John chapter 20, verse 31, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That was John's purpose. So rather than draw attention to Jesus' humanity and his wrestling within his flesh of what lay ahead, John chooses to emphasize Jesus' deity. He was the Son of God. Fully human, yes, but fully God. Jesus is being presented as being in complete control of what is about to happen. Remember what Jesus said back in John chapter 10, verse 17? For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment 
I received from my Father. John wants us to understand. Do not miss this. Jesus, God dressed in human flesh, was in complete control of all the things that were coming upon him. Third observation involves Judas, and Wayne's already alluded to it. Look at verse 2. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Jesus was, Judas was well aware of the place, but that did not prevent Jesus from returning there to their regular place of retreat. We all have those regular places. Those places where we can get away from it all. Those places where we can break away from the, or escape the routines of our daily lives for some rest and much needed relaxation. For some of you, it's the campground or the trailer or a cottage. For others, it's a coffee shop. For some, it may be a shopping mall sitting in front of the television. For others, it may be a long drive in the car. For Jesus and his disciples, it was a place in the garden on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, just east of the city of Jerusalem. And Judas knew that. And he came with a company of Jesus' opponents, consisting of a Roman cohort, which typically would number 600 Roman soldiers. That's what a cohort was. Sometimes it would consist as, a little, as little of 200. But still, are you serious? And also officials from the chief priests and Pharisees who really functioned as the temple police. They would serve as the arresting officers on this night. So Judas, Judas led this group of Jewish and Roman authorities. Think about the irony of that. The Jews and Romans typically had a long-standing hatred for one another. Yet I find it so interesting how a common enemy will make strange bedfellows. Judas led, led this armed band of arresting authorities through the darkness on a manhunt. He led them to the location where Jesus had often met with his disciples. You see, Jesus did not run. He entered the garden where he'd often retreated with his disciples. And once there, Jesus did not hide. He presented himself. Look at verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also was, 
was who was betraying him was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. My translation, it uses, or we're told that Jesus went forth. And the New International Version reads, he went out and asked them. So this garden may have actually been surrounded by an enclosed wall. The words used here in the originals, the verbs that were used, imply as much. He entered and he went out. But whatever the case, Jesus took the initiative to present himself visible to the ones that he knew that were determined to harm him. Perhaps John omitted Judas's kiss of betrayal in order to stress Jesus' complete control of these present circumstances. He did not want to switch the spotlight off of Jesus even for a moment. John wants his readers to understand that Jesus' death, including all the events leading up to it, was a voluntary act of self-sacrifice. Mark's account puts it this way, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, presented himself to Judas and this company. And notice not only did he make himself visible, but he admitted that he was the one they were looking for. And not once, but twice, both in verse 6 and again in verse 8. I am he, Jesus the Nazarene. The he is not in the original. And so that led, has led some to suggest that John is reporting another claim of Jesus to be God, deity. I am is how God often referred to himself to Israel in the Old Testament. However, it is unlikely that that claim to be God was what caused these captors to, to draw back and fall to the ground, as reported in verse 6. More likely, Jesus had caught them just completely by surprise. I remember as a youngster, I was probably five or six, maybe seven years old. I caught this good-sized garter snake in the vacant lot across from our house where we often played. I must have had some help, but I can't remember anyone else being with me at the time. All I remember is coming home and into the house with this garter snake. And I had it somehow clamped his head on the end of a clothes hanger that I'd straightened. So I'm walking in the house with this 
he was probably, like, he's a good size, two and a half, maybe three feet long. I need you to just pause for a moment and picture that in your mind's eye. Mom and I met as she came around the corner of the doorway, somewhere between the, the kitchen and the back entrance. And I was proud as punch. But to say that my mother fell back is a little bit of an understatement. <laughs> Me and the snake, we made our exit rather quickly. I honestly don't think I saw my mother react like that ever again in my life. Just sheer terror. Only later, after she had recovered from what she claimed was a near heart attack, did I return for the don't you ever do that again lecture. The way Jesus presented himself took them completely by surprise. And they fell back like a domino effect, stumbling over one another. The second half of verse 5 I find really sad. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Psalm 1 comes to mind. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the path of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. Judas had chosen to stand with the enemies of Jesus. With whom are you choosing to stand? More often than not, those with whom we choose to stand, with whom we're associated, with those that we count our friends, they often reflect what is in our hearts, our priorities and values, our beliefs and convictions. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20 offers some relational advice. Walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get into trouble. The psalmist states his conviction in Psalm 26. I do not sit with, with deceitful men, nor will I go with pretenders. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Judas chose otherwise. He chose to stand with those who were determined to end Jesus' life. But remember, Jesus was no martyr. I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Jesus was in complete control of these unfolding events. He's not interested in playing some game of hide and seek. Rather, he presented himself to those who had come to arrest him. And Jesus did not fight. He protected his own. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. 
So if you seek me, let these, these disciples of mine, go their way. Jesus was reasoning with his captors. Because I am willing to present myself to you, let my companions go. I'm the one you want. And verse 9 actually gives us a, some insight into why he was doing this. Remember how he had prayed earlier in John chapter 17? Well, let's look at verse 9 first. To fulfill the words which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. In that prayer in John chapter 17, he prayed, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And anticipating his departure, he was asking his father to provide that kind of protection for his disciples. But here, in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed with the recognition that he had kept them and guarded them while he was with them. Listen to Jesus' claim in John chapter 6. All, all those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those who, is, who he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, was prepared to present himself while protecting his disciples. Now look at verses 10 and 11. Simon Peter, then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Good old Peter. Well-intentioned, loyal to a fault, courageous, committed, unquestionably, but completely irrational and a very poor aim. I can't imagine he was intending to cut the right ear off that high priest's servant. The Greek word translated sword is probably nothing more than a dagger. And according to Luke chapter 22, verse 38, between the 11 of them, they just had two swords or two daggers when they entered the garden. By the way, the use of names and the detailed descriptions found in verse 10 and 11 are unique. The synoptic gospels don't name Peter or the high priest slave. In naming them and talking about a, a right ear being cut off adds veracity, believability, and concreteness to this account, to John's report. 
it really did happen. None of the synoptic gospels named the participants. Luke reported the same incident in Luke chapter 22. Let's turn there for a moment. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. This is an example of how the, the accounts differ, and you'll remember that all of these accounts, the, the synoptic gospels were written around, well, probably 30, 40 years after the death of Christ, where John is written some 30 years beyond that. So he's probably familiar at least in part, with some of these synoptic accounts. But notice verse 22, or begin, chapter 22, beginning at verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And those who were around him saw what was going to happen. They said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop! No more of this! And he touched his ear and healed him. Interesting. Can you imagine what could have happened if Jesus did not intervene at that moment? It was 200 plus armed soldiers and officials versus 11 disciples with two daggers. It'd be over before it began. Jesus did nothing to avoid his arrest. He didn't run. He entered a garden. He didn't hide. He presented himself. He didn't fight. He protected his own. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, was arrested. Jesus, knowing all the things coming upon him, was determined to finish the work God had given him to do. Verse 11 ends with the rhetorical question. Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Rhetorical question is a figure of speech used to make a point rather than to get an answer. Jesus wasn't expecting an answer. He was making a point. But what was the point that he was trying to make? He is informing Peter specifically, but all those within earshot. In fact, he is informing you and I through this written account of the, God, of the Apostle John, that he was prepared to drink the cup which the Father has given him. And folks, this was no roll-up-the-rim Tim Hortons variety cup. 
In fact, in Isaiah, in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 51, verse 17, we read, Wake up! Wake up, Jerusalem! You have drunk the cup of the Lord's fury. Some translations use, you have drunk the cup of God's wrath. You've drunk the cup of terror, tipping out its last drops. Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's wrath. Matthew chapter 20, we're told that the mother of James and John approached Jesus with a request on her son's behalf. She asked that they would be assigned the seats on Jesus' right and left in the kingdom that he was going to bring into existence. Places of honor, highest honor. In verse 22, we find Jesus' response to her absolutely audacious request. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? He asked James and John, to which they responded, We are able. Beloved, they had no idea what they were suggesting. Later in Matthew's account, his report of what took place in the garden between John chapter 18, verse 1 and verse 2 included the following. And he went a little beyond them, beyond the eleven, and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He was in such agony. Remember, his sweat became like drops of blood falling on the ground. And the physical suffering that Jesus would endure as a result of death by crucifixion, as terrible as that would be, is the most cruel death that the Romans could come up with during this time. As terrible as that would be, it was nothing, nothing in comparison to the suffering associated with this cup the Father had given him to drink. The cup is the infinite wrath of God's judgment on the sin of the world. On the cross, Jesus would experience separation from God the Father. Beloved, is that not the definition of hell? In those moments, as he hung suspended between heaven and earth, by nails driven through his hands and his feet, he cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani. 
It's translated means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off from his father, who is in heaven. Considered an enemy of God because of our sin, it was counted as his own. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 reads, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The great exchange. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. We have the great, command, great commission. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 39. We have the great commandment. And here, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have the great exchange. When we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, trusting that his death paid the penalty for my sin, our sin, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. Our sin becomes what he died for on that cross on Calvary. Beloved, it is a great and miraculous exchange. And as a result of this exchange, our broken relationship with God is restored so that John could write, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You see, God's redemptive plan becomes personal. And that is possible because Jesus chose not to run, not to hide, not to fight. Instead, he entered the garden, presented himself, and protected his ministry companions. Jesus knowing all the things that were coming upon him, was arrested. Look at verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let me close with a couple of implications for us to consider. These events that led to Jesus' arrest, first and foremost, present an effort to be appreciated. An effort to be appreciated. Think about it. Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, willingly gave himself up. Love you, Mom. Remember her oft reply? I can hear it ringing in my ears. Actions speak louder than words, George. The Apostle John, who wrote this account, the life and ministry of Jesus, would later write in his first epistle these words. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates, keeps on demonstrating his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' arrest was an essential step in his voluntary self-sacrifice for the sins of humankind because he loves us. We must never, never take this demonstration of love for granted. The second implication of these events that led to Jesus' arrest is an example to be emulated. I alluded to this earlier in the introduction. God's will, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, is good, acceptable, perfect, and it's sometimes very difficult. Jesus warned his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. And then for these 11, he became even more specific. You'll be hated, persecuted, unsynagogued, and even put to death. I find it somewhat ironic that it is Peter, the one who cut off the high priest's servant ear, is the one that wrote these words to believers, much later, but to believers who had been scattered all over the known world because of a fierce persecution that had broken out amongst the follow against the followers of Jesus. He wrote this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Years ago, Kenny Rogers wrote a song or sung a song, I'm not sure whether he wrote it, of an old gambler who offered this advice to a younger man. They were riding on a train. Boy, you got to learn to play it right. You got to know when to hold them, when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. Well, Jesus, because he was determined to finish the work God had given him to do, did not run, he did not hide. He did not fight. He entered the garden. He presented himself. And he protected his own. Think about that. May we be, find, be found following his example in completing the work that God has called us to do. In fact, prepared for us to do. Both individually and collectively, regardless of how difficult it may become. And folks, life can be difficult. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, was arrested. And in the events leading up to his arrest, 
he provided an effort to be appreciated and an example to be emulated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the demonstration of love for us while we were yet sinners. May we individually and collectively respond appropriately to that demonstration of your love for us. Keep us from taking your love for granted, spurning it or forsaking it. And as we face the challenges of this life, may we follow in his steps. Give us courage and strength so that we do not run or hide or fight Help us to keep considering the, the interests of others as well as our own. Father, enable us to be faithful followers by the power of your spirit, not for our glory, but for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.